0: Welcome to Your Life, The Sequel. A podcast about getting your act together and making changes happen in your life. You want change, and we want to help you with guests and discussions about how to make change in your life, whether big or small, change can happen. This is your chance to become the person you were meant to be. Now, here we are, Rick Roshan
1: and Melissa Carlson.
0: I would love to welcome you to... Your Life, The Sequel, a podcast for people who really, really want to change, with a focus on people who are over 40 years old looking to change anything in their lives. Today, I'm on my own. My co-host, Melissa Carlson, is still suntanning herself in Hawaii, so we'll see her soon on one of these upcoming episodes. But I'm really, really excited to have a very special guest today, Jeffrey Salaji who I know through body work in San Anselmo, Marin County, who also has an office in San Francisco. And I was on the ropes, you know, like you get when you're over 50 and you're having all kinds of body issues. And Jeff really, really helped me with my body and with acupuncture and massage and cupping and all kinds of great stuff. But that's not what we're talking about today. Jeff also has a really amazing podcast called how humans work and he's done a lot of work a lot of research and a lot of deep thinking and has done a podcast for people to really get into the brains of human beings and decision making and behaviors so i would love to hear jeff tell us about what he is doing and then we can get into a conversation today about his work with how humans work hey jeff how are you doing
1: Hey, Rick, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. And I'm really stoked and glad for you and Melissa launching your podcast. It's great.
0: Yeah, it was pretty scary, you know, to get to the point of actually doing it. I I don't know. I probably talked to you about it for, you know, six months or something. And then I finally executed against it. And once you start getting into the pocket of doing it, it actually is really fun. So, I want to have a very candid, very clear conversation directed at men today. Okay. And and I and I think that, you know, your work around human beings and the way that we think and you know what we came from and how that all plays into who we are today. I think that's going to be super interesting for people, especially men because men are kind of left out to dry when it comes to talking about their feelings, talking about their feelings with other guys, and especially guys, you know, in our age bracket, we were, I was talking to someone the other day that they were probably in their early 30s. And I told them, I said, I don't know if you know this or not, but my parents signed a waiver when I went to Catholic school that any adult could hit me if I was acting up. So if any adult can hit you, when you are doing some perceived acting up, you know, all these kinds of things influence us. And so I think that there's a really interesting place of work and calcification for people our age who weren't really able to talk about our feelings, you know, better to be seen than heard, all those kinds of things from our time period. So I'd love to talk to you about men in particular and a little bit of the background of, you know, where guys in our age group have come from and, and how we can start accessing feelings and changing and talking about our behaviors.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a lot. And I hear you. <laughs> and I hear you. There is a lot for men and you know our generation, even younger and older, that we have to negotiate that comes along with being a man. And so I found my way into men's work at a pretty young age. I'm turning 50 at the end of the year and so i was i was working as a bellhop out of high school when i was in junior college and there was the sweet adeline singers came to the hotel i was working at sure and i had this moment where there was 12 women in the lobby at the end of their conference looking at each other and singing that's what friends are for eye to eye in this really profound and intimate way and i was a witness to it and it in that moment i realized that wait there's something that's going on in the male world that doesn't quite meet this level of connection these women were were showing me through their music and through their their singing to each other and so i i recognized that and i found myself in a men's group at a young age at 19 through a therapist i was working with i found myself doing men's retreats up in the woods of Mendocino in my early 20s. And ironically enough, we were out there singing in the woods and uh, doing the dances of universal peace, which some of you may or may not know about, and other spiritual practices. And those were transformative for me in starting to learn what the possibilities are of male connection, of male friendship, and of male intimacy. And so that carried on through my life in, in assorted ways but i would say there's there's a deep recognition i've i've come to have in my own life around the inner life and i think you're right i think it is particularly fraught for men who were taught that their vulnerabilities aren't necessarily welcome or okay mm-hmm. and there's a big difference between hiding one's vulnerabilities and developing mastery in relationship with them Right, so yeah, so when we hide those parts of us that are that are small, that are vulnerable, um, maybe they're not welcome in our particular branch of culture or, or, or subculture. Problems come along with that because we can't fully access the truth of our fears, the teachings in our fears, and the teachings in the stresses related to our fears. So I would say, yes, there's a really important need for men to connect with their feelings and connect with each other.
0: So I love the story about the Sweet Adelines. I think that's very sweet and very enviable. You know, Because we're men, I don't think it exempts us from the human experience of wanting love and acceptance and connection with other human beings. And I think that Maybe younger generations have had more access to being able to speak about their feelings without, you know, fear of reprisal or embarrassment. I think embarrassments, are, you know, and shame are very powerful tools that people can use to get people to, you know, just shut down. So if a man is not able to access those pieces and may not even be available to know that he wants those things. What do you see happens to people when they are not accessing that kind of stuff? Does it come out, you know, sideways? Do they? How do you see it manifesting itself if they're not getting those connections?
1: Well, I, ultimately, it's limiting in whatever way. So, yeah, it could come out sideways. Um, it might only be the ability to, in the portfolio of emotional experiences is to allow anger mm-hmm. or power or domination or a confusion around the emotional experience i remember my dad talking about that very experience when he was a young man that he was overwhelmed with emotions and had no idea he went to his parents and and had they had no idea what to do with him, and he had no idea what to do with that overwhelming emotional experience I've been fortunate enough to have a series of of male mentors in my life and I, I recall one in particular James Stewart who was a dream teacher and a body worker and so one of the ways I healed the more punishing sides of my upbringing because my dad was, you know, authoritarian at times and used corporal punishment as part of, you know, parenting strategy was I went to bodywork school Mm-hmm. And when I was in bodywork school, I remember just going through periods of time where I would cry. And I and I, what I realized is I was crying out the hurts that were in my body that they were the fears and the threats that I learned to have in my family system were something that I needed to actually learn how to release. And so having my body touched in kind ways and learning to have and receive touch was a huge thing for me as a young man when I was 19, 20, 21. But James Stewart often would teach in his dream work, which is to follow the feeling, you know, to really listen to the feeling inside the dream and start to build trust and relationship with our feelings. So if we can't trust our feelings, um, it's hard to have self-knowledge, like who I am and what's really going on for me. Sure. And so it's hard to mature and it's hard to become good at stress. And so what you see are what you might call negative behaviors or negative patterns in a professional life, or um, relationships breakdown down. I mean, these are real these are real serious things, or one can't emotionally connect with their kids in some way, you know, so the the fathering, the friendship, the honesty, the communication that's necessary to keep intact, connected relationships, falters at some level.
0: That's really fascinating. And I really, I too was raised with corporal punishment both at school and at home. And I was thinking while you were speaking that that is being able to be touched in a kind way that's non-sexual and to then release the pain that is stored in the body. That's really impactful. That's really compelling, interesting stuff because as guys... We I was told to buck up, you know and mm-hmm. and and to put a cap on it and shove it down, and then it becomes whatever it becomes you know forty years later and I really think that if I could heal all those scars, and I've done a lot of work, you know, a lot of therapy, all that kind of stuff, but I don't know that I've actually dealt with the feelings of i will call them terror. That mm-hmm. a little person can experience when a person that's twice as big as them has decided that they are going to be the recipient of some version of corporal punishment. And you know what that does to you as a person who's navigating the world, and, and I think that a lot of us are walking around with that kind of damage.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, in the field, that would be toxic stress, right? That would be trauma and toxic stress because there is not the capacity or the development to handle the influx of, you know, anger, judgment, physical wounding. So this is the interesting part when we start talking about evolution and we start looking at the, the deep history of our biology is that we need... As social primates, we need connection and reassurance in order to foster and thrive. And there's a lot of things that go along, or there are, what I want to say is there's a lot of impacts that follow when we don't get that. The way I've come to see this, because basically I'm telling you about my healing journey, and it's it's funny because I'm seeing a different lens with your questions and focus on it, but I became interested in healing, mm-hmm. right, through body work, through acupuncture, through start into studying stress. And so that process of healing and that process of becoming whole became a guiding philosophy for me, a guiding way in which I've approached my life and the choices I've made. So what's it mean to become whole? What's it mean to find those parts of us that didn't feel safe, right? Right. And it's really interesting because those things that we need are actually biological things. You know, they are evolutionary implants inside us that we need as part of being humans. And so the whole field of stress and the whole field of toxic stress is a really fascinating and interesting thing because it shows us a side of our humanity. It shows me a side of my humanity I've become very interested in. I've become very interested in stress, in some degree trauma, in some degree toxic stress, but mostly What is the role of stress in our lives as it relates to healing? And there's a dynamic and there's a, a dance there between them. But to your point, many people are walking around with these toxic stress experiences, these forms of violations, these violences that take place against this nature that we have as a biological being that isn't really respected, that isn't really valued, And so we walk around with that without necessarily the self understanding, particularly as men, that actually our vulnerability might be the way to healing.
0: Yes. Can you talk more about that? Because that, you know, being vulnerable when you're hurt is counterintuitive, I think. You know, if you were to say to me, like, what's the cure for fear? Vulnerability is not at the top of the list. But I find that super interesting. Can you talk a little more about that?
1: Definitely. So I would like to say that, you know, we do need an adult self, right? We do need the part of us that can protect ourselves. And I'm not asking anybody to walk around like a raw, uncovered nerve. Sure. You know, that's that's in, impossible to do. But if we do have a raw, hurting nerve, vulnerability is a way to begin to address
0: it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So because I like practical mm-hmm. baseline sort of things that people can do as a practice, if I am a person who maybe wants to have deeper relationships, if I'm a person who wants to have deeper intimacy with others, if I am a person who is listening to this podcast and is stuck and maybe has seen a light bulb go off, that you know maybe they're a person that is shut down, for whatever reason, yeah. and, and they and they want to not be shut down anymore because they want to see what's on the other side of the wall. You know yeah. what's on the other side. So, what are some basic, fundamental, foundational things that a person can do to start being available to that kind of an experience?
1: That's a great question. This may seem a little off point but i believe and i've come to believe using our breath is such a helpful tool when we're in those conditions when we're in that state of experience where we feel shut down so the our breathing practice is a and breathing is a great way to ride the waves of those harder feelings of those contractions Secondly, I believe that it's really important to have a positive view of our contractions and our shutdown. If we're trying to beat down our walls instead of understanding Mm. the function and the way in which they've come to serve us, We become at odds with something we don't fully understand. And so there's a deeper reconciliation with the small defensive parts of us that learn to protect our most vulnerable, most precious, most overlooked and unseen places inside ourselves. So that would be the second move. So breathe. Second move would be to um, honor the wall, honor the defense structures that are there, Three, I would say the third move could be really starting to look at the cost of that wall, though, and looking at the cost of those dynamics and beginning to, for, fight for an imagination of your life that's not defined by that unconscious habit or the gravity of that contraction and defensive structure. So, loving on the structure and starting to reimagine one's possibility of one's condition. And that's harder to do. It's kind of like working out, it's easier to do in a group. You go to the gym. And what do you do at the gym? You work out with people. So it's like a muscle vulnerability intimacy is beginning to exercise that. Where I've done that in my own life and learned to do that in my own life has really been, like I alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, is men's circles. Mm-hmm. Genuine, authentic men's circles. And so you can do that as a man in a therapeutic situation where there's a leader and if you're really wounded and you really need a lot of, wise security in order to feel safe you could get that at a therapeutic level you could also get it at a community community level as well that there are different uh men's circles out there that can aid one starting to exercise that muscle of honesty and vulnerability as well as blessing the strength and remembering that we know it's not about all just becoming vulnerable in a puddle but that it's inclusive of all sides of you know who anyone is who a man is both their strength and their power as well as the places where we feel helpless
0: that's really wonderful so i would be curious to know when you see people who don't change who are kind of you know in this place that we just talked about and they don't change what do you see as the big limiting factors for them is there any one or two things that you can look at and go, you know, that, that's that's kind of where it gets stuck. Like, what's the hardest part for people? Is it loving on the wall or is it working through it or is it the vulnerability? What do you see in, in men? And obviously there's all types of people and all types of experiences. But just you know, generally, what, what do you see as the big big sticking point for people?
1: I mean, at one level, it's probably habits and regression to the mean. Yeah, You know, so we get stressed and we get busy and then that insight, uh, gets thin. And then people tend to gra- We tend, I do, I know other people do as well, we tend to grasp on that one thing that kind of got us to the next level. And we think that if we just keep that singular feeling, that somehow that's going to happen. And then when that starts to evaporate, because the landscape of the world is changing, that change is the constant, that somehow the regression to the mean of the habitual sides of ourselves. So working with habits can be a very important part. And the habitual mind can be a very important part of getting unstuck. You know, part of the reasons people are stuck are people learn not to care. They learn not to value themselves. So it's harder if you're stuck and you don't care to do something. But once you start to do something, once you recognize, like you said, when people say, you know what, I want to change. I think the biggest challenge that I've seen time and time again, working with people in in coaching with stress as an acupuncturist um as a as a body worker is that people unconsciously repeat the patterns they're trying to eliminate in their attempts to change
0: can you explain that a little deeper so
1: what happens is an insight comes Mm -hmm. a desire comes sure and it's like oh that's a good idea Mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna start running three days a week, mm-hmm. right? Because I've been feeling terrible about myself. So I'm going to get fit. I'm going to run. and I'm going to do that three days a week. I, I get into that for a couple of weeks. And pretty soon what I've done is I've replaced the the impulse towards vitality, the impulse towards a full and meaningful life with a behavioral action that I need to repeat. Yes, And so I lose my connection with the inspiration and the connection of life. And I've just put another to-do list another item on my to-do list and then i'm trying to comp- do my to-do list and then i get stressed and i'm busy and then my to-do list gets a little wonky and i'm not as effective and then i'm not running and then i'm feeling bad about myself right. so i set up the thing to do to feel better about myself but then i turned it into another reason to you know judge myself right <laughs> and that cycle that people get into when they make change that cycle of going for something and then all of a sudden seeing that thing they were trying to achieve become a a burden and a weight on the very thing they were trying to move out of is the dance I see. Like, that's what I see most commonly in my work with people.
0: Well, and I, I was just talking to a friend about someone who they know who's having a challenge with their husband, who's been a consistent philanderer for tw- right. 20 years or whatever. And he went to a special camp to, uh, I think, to learn to tell the truth or something like that, came back and was immediately caught in a new lie. And we were talking about it, and I was thinking, you know, maybe it's that he is just trying to get his outsides to match his insides. You know, he's a, he's a bad boy, and and he does bad things, and then he gets in trouble, and then st- what i mean what's human beings favorite thing to do be right like see i told see <laughs> and it's really fascinating because i know you know i don't know this person but i know mm. that is not getting them what they want deep deep down which is what you know mammals typically want which is love acceptance care compassion you know these basic desires and needs and it's it, and it's really fascinating that you know, human beings, we can kind of see our behavior and then become victims of our own behavior.
1: It's really fascinating. I like that story you're bringing up for a couple reasons. One, this bad boy, mm-hmm. you know, evolutionarily, humans and men in particular are caught between, and couples, it gets into mating. When you start talking about men, you're basically talking about men, women, and you're talking about the dance of mating yes. or mm-hmm. in whatever you know, gender variation that is, but there's this partnering process, right? And so there's two different mating strategies in the natural world Mm -hmm. that are well-known. And one is called tournament species. And these are where the men compete for mating rights. And there's an inequity in the effort of raising the offspring. So Mm -hmm. in this case, the men fight, the winner gets the mating rights for the most opportunities for reproduction. Right. Yeah. And those males and those species aren't really invested, aren't really invested in what happens with the work of the offspring. What they're invested in is just as many opportunities as they can and winning those opportunities.
0: Lots of me. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. And we're evolved to that. We, right. There's a natural impulse towards that. Mm-hmm. And then there's another mating strategy, which is called pair bonding. And that's more cooperative and there's more equality and more shared work. Right. And so here we are as men and as, as humans. And it turns out we're caught somewhere in the middle of those two dynamics.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And you can see that playing out in the culture time and time again. I saw it in the election, and I wrote a piece on, on Huff Post about it about between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton is better together. Donald Trump was make, the, make America strong again or make whatever stronger, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, make America great again, which is let's be dominant again. Yes. And then you can see that in the movie Grease, right? In terms of what. what um, the
0: Thunderbirds. What,
1: yeah. Travolta's character <laughs> name is right now. I want to say oh, his Danny. Name, but it's Danny. 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 Yeah. yeah. And he's dancing between, wait, am I the bad boy leather yes. you know, Thunderbird yeah. boy? Or am I this really sweet guy who knows how to hang out and connect with a woman on the ocean side? Right. Right. And so there's this dance and conversation we have around that. So we're caught in that. And so one of the things that's very helpful about the evolutionary perspective is we can see our condition at a deeper level as men. Mm -hmm. We can see, oh, we got these dancing impulses and how invested, how dominant, how status oriented am I gonna become or how cooperative, connected and invested I can become. And it's not a done deal, it's not guaranteed. And that's one of the reasons I started the podcast with the season one, focusing on the conversation around fathers. How do men and how did each of our fathers handle that dynamic? How invested were they in us? And so that gets into the, in a sense, a level of the wound of how invested, how much did our fathers see us? You know, as Robert Bly said, you know, a monumental figure in our culture, and particularly men's awareness, said, you know, if you're not being seen, you're being hurt. And so this this kind of question around how invested men are going to be is an ongoing question that every generation has to answer it. Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials, they're going to have to find their own answers, you know? And so you get where I'm coming from. Oh, totally.
0: I think this is yeah. really interesting because if you think about like father's, father knows best, which was not about seeing the children and, and nurturing the children, it was teaching them lessons and disciplining them. You know, really that was kind of the job. And then the the love... And the nurturing came from the mother, and I think that a you know, a lot of times we have parents who bring their own baggage from their own childhoods, which was a different generation and people you know depression era and starvation mode and all the negative behavior that people afraid of war and starvation and poverty, all of those things that were brought out in the twenties and thirties and you know the end of the Spanish pandemic, I mean all that stuff. Those are our Dads, My dad. And I always think, you know, people just probably do their best with what they were given. But that doesn't mean there's not collateral damage from my best. And as a person who has some historical information about, you know, being raised and and how I feel about, you know, (laughs) my parents' parenting skills... You know, it's complicated because, you know, you love them, you understand that there's a lot of ingredients that go into the soup and biological too, you know, that just not being allowed, not being able, not being available to nurture your nurture your young. I can see its long-standing effects on myself and other people.
1: Definitely. There's another side to the story you were telling about with your, your, your friend who has the lying and, and is mm-hmm. searching for solutions. And, you know, whatever the addiction is, whether it's a sex addiction or an alcohol addiction or a work addiction or whatever, these challenges of, of being alive and finding our way through the world, you know, one of my teachers has this great quote he often says when we're at retreats, he says, um, you can never get enough of what you don't really want.
0: You can never get enough of what you don't really want,
1: meaning that you can't be if you can't be satisfied by it. Mm-hmm. Right? It might not. It might not be what you need. Right. Yeah, so right. the cycles we get in trying to find a solution for the feelings we have, or try to medicate ourselves, or try to console ourselves, or or feel whatever we're trying to feel through addictions and substances. By the way, I would put a put a plug in for Gabor, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's really good at talking about addiction and substances. So for your listeners, if, if they're interested in that issue and they're trying to learn more, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate is amazing on how he speaks around those issues. But the way I think of this is I think of this through the paleo lens, that mm-hmm. ancestrally, we if we grew up in a tribe and we were deeply known by, the say, Dunbar's number, 150 people who knew us from the time of our birth and understood almost every part of our nature and a good deal and was we were deeply seen, not just by mom and dad. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> but by, you know, cousins and aunts, sure. uncles, nether yes. relatives, and we had a purpose and a place in that community. I think that those addictive tendencies and those problematic aspects of ego development we, we experience in modern culture wouldn't be the same. So I think it's also helpful to look at the struggles that we go through with change, with our ego, with ourself, with our behaviors, through the loss of that deep ancestral tribal connection we were born to have.
0: I totally agree.
1: So then you have one person out there trying to heal themselves of this feeling that they can't really do because that feeling is tied to a deeper sense of community that's really hard to replicate in a technological, industrial, mass, you know, modern society. It just is in a consistent, coherent way. And so I would add that into that layer of that story and say, okay, not only evolutionarily, we kind of caught between these mating strategies, but we're also culturally in a radically different reality than we are. So when we look at our, our own change and our own behaviors, I found it deeply helpful to go to that larger story, And go you know what some of the things that i feel bad about myself or feel bad in myself about yes actually it is i'm experiencing these things i'm experiencing these things that are part of the evolutionary story and they're not mine alone they're not my failures or flaws they're part of the conversation of human nature and having a human self and ego right or they're part of the challenge of culture that's radically moving in all these different ways and yet it might leave some gaps because it doesn't see me as a, you know, a unique individual.
0: Amazing. I could talk to you all day long, but I want to keep this tight for people. Can you tell us uh, where online people can learn more about what you're doing?
1: Definitely. Go to my website, howhumanswork.us. You'll find links to my podcast there. Also, if you want to, you know, send me a message or, or work with me at a coaching level, I'm happy to do that. My main purpose and dedication, which I really do, kind of intimated at through this conversation is I'm really keen on helping people heal the subtle war on the biological self. Like these things we have against our deep nature, I'm about healing that. So I do that with my acupuncture practice. I do that with coaching and um, I do that with my podcast.
0: Amazing. Thank you very much. And we will hopefully have you back sometime in the future.
1: Thanks so much, Rick. It's really great talking with you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Your Life, the Sequel. Make sure to visit our website, revital.ist, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you'll never miss a show. Or sign up for our newsletter, The Revitalist, filled with daily tips for making change in your life. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too special thanks to our audio engineer and editor, Mark Kate. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode of Inspirational Change. Be the change you want to be.